ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy... This was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, April 5th, 2022, the 440th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. In the last 24 hours, we have gotten some more big news about Elon Musk. He is joining the board at Twitter, so it seems that he is going to have an even more influential role than was initially thought. And if he turns out to be the free speech absolutist, he says he is. Well, hey, maybe we could have some real good news on Twitter. Maybe they bring back all the banned accounts. And I'm not just talking about mine. I'm talking about Donald Trump. Donald Trump being back on Twitter would be awesome. In fact, if Donald Trump and everyone who was ever banned was right back on Twitter, the public conversation would turn on a dime. I have said so many times, there is no way any of this would be happening, that any of this could work without censorship. All of the blue anon, blue checkmark media figures and celebrities and Biden supporters and the Lincoln Project, people like that, they are kept in a protective bubble by the social media companies. They say things and they get positive reactions all the time. If the negative reactions come, they almost never see them unless they're Taylor Lorenz and, you know, they're obsessed with constantly looking and they like to fight against the trolls in their comments, or maybe they're just participating with bots. Who knows? But if people with big followings get back onto that platform and start saying true things to a bunch of people who pretty much genuinely haven't seen anything true in a year and a half, 
oh, there's going to be a meltdown. They're able to say ridiculous things all the time about every subject because there's no one there to stop them. Twitter supports the same political agenda, so they let these people go on as long as they want. Talk about killing white people? Sure, no problem. You want to have people removed from their jobs unless they'll have their children forcibly injected with an experimental gene therapy? No problem. That's just fine on Twitter. That advances the cause. Go Pfizer. You want to call Hillary's involvement in the Russian collusion hoax a conspiracy theory? Twitter loves that. You want to say that election fraud was a big lie? Oh, Twitter will promote your posts for free. And there's never any blowback because no one with a big influence ever challenges those people. And when they do, those comments, those tweets are all cleaned up in the algorithm. They drop them in the feed. They make sure people don't see them. They want to keep it nice and comfortable for Blue Anon so that Blue Anon can propagandize the world. Social media and traditional media, newspapers and the mainstream television shows, they all enforce the same narrative. And they do that so that they can give everyone the idea that this is what everyone thinks. And because people do often act in herds, people don't generally have the knowledge or the courage to go against the central narrative, the false narrative takes on the illusion of being the only thing that's true. Even if there's some doubt around the edges, oh, this doesn't seem just right, this doesn't seem just right. Well, everybody believes it, so it must be right somehow, right? And then if you don't bother looking, well, that's how you end up with the idea that everybody's saying an obviously an overwhelmingly fraudulent election was fraudulent while well, they're terrorists. So we'll see what Elon actually does. And it's interesting that this is on the timeline with the full launch of the Starlink satellite system. There's some mystery about how this stuff is all going to connect, but it's something to keep an eye on because it seems like they are trying to have an internet that reduces the middlemen between the infrastructure and the people looking for information. And so now it turns out that Jeff Bezos and Amazon have their own competitive project. And we'll just have to see how this all shakes out. In the afternoon yesterday, we got the news that the Senate Judiciary Committee deadlocked at 1111 on whether or not to support the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson, the woman who is extremely lenient every time a child pornography, pedophilia, child torture case comes in front of her. But that deadlock was good enough. That's all they needed. And then they could take it to the full Senate and the full Senate would move her nomination forward to set up a final vote. And hopefully for the Uniparty and the global communists, get Ketanji Brown Jackson seated onto the Supreme Court for now. Was she nominated by an illegitimate president? Yes, that's problem one. Is she being vetted and approved by an illegitimate Senate? Yes, that's problem two. So if she does end up on the Supreme Court somehow, 
it would not be wrong to see that as a step to the further delegitimization of the Supreme Court itself. No one who has looked at the case for election fraud at all should see any of this as legitimate. The election was a complete and total fraud. The information about that, more information about that comes out every day. Nothing that spawns from that fraud should be considered legitimate or legal. And I have hopes, as I'm sure many of you do, we're just going to have to see if it plays out in real life, obviously, but I have hopes that all of this will be unwound. Joe Biden is not legitimately signing executive orders. He's not legitimately nominating people. He's not legitimately running the military. All of this should seem pretty clear by this point. But you may be thinking, okay, so they deadlocked in the Judiciary Committee. It was 11-11. But in the full Senate, it's still 50-50, isn't it? And Kamala will wander on over and giggle while being the tiebreaker. If that's needed. Of course, it's not needed because Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins all voted with the Democrats to advance the nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson. Mitt Romney voted against her nomination to a lower court 10 months ago. And now with full knowledge of her record in sentencing legitimate child predators, Mitt decided, oh yeah, it makes more sense now. This was his statement. After reviewing Judge Jackson's record and testimony, I have concluded that she is a well-qualified jurist and a person of honor. While I do not expect to agree with every decision she may make on the court, I believe that she more than meets the standard of excellence and integrity. I congratulate Judge Jackson on her expected confirmation and look forward to her continued service to our nation. That is Mitt Romney. Devout Mormon and devout family man, we're told. He has like 17 kids, but apparently they're most useful as cover. Oh, I would never vote for a woman who is lenient on child rapists and those who like to view the pictures of child rape. I have kids of my own. That's just like Katanji Brown Jackson's answers in her testimony. Oh, as a mother, as a mother, I would never allow kids to be put in danger by the men I gave short sentences to who left prison and then put more kids in danger. I would never do that. At some point, you actually have to wonder what it is these people are there to do. Why did Katanji Brown Jackson get nominated and why did Mitt Romney vote? to increase the chances of her confirmation. He's basically voting for her confirmation and acknowledged as much in his statement, but it's not all final yet. Now, Kataji Brown Jackson is related by marriage to former Republican Speaker of the House, Wisconsin's Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan was Mitt Romney's vice presidential nominee in 2012 and was considered a rising star of the party. Paul Ryan, the very serious man who did the math and lifted the weights. 
Maybe he could be president one day, or maybe he would join an establishment GOP dream ticket of Mike Pence and Paul Ryan. They talked about that. Things have been talked about. And Paul Ryan vehemently opposed Donald Trump. He made Donald Trump's life more difficult because he did not want to see Donald Trump take the reins of his establishment Republican Party. Then Paul Ryan continued his career as an establishment Republican cuck when he went over to Fox News. And of course, Paul Ryan also supports Ketanji Brown Jackson, who he is related to by marriage. Now, it seems like they didn't choose Ketanji Brown Jackson just because she's black and just because she's a woman. They didn't like take a huge stack of resumes from the 50 most qualified black women and winnow it down until they found the absolute best. That's not what happened. I mean, if that's what happened, man, it would be a huge coincidence that she just so happened to be related by marriage to Paul Ryan. And if there weren't anything else at play besides her qualifications and her ability to do the job successfully on the Supreme Court, if people were just deciding based on what's best for the country, well, why was she nominated? And then why do Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins all vote to push her nomination forward? Now, yes, Collins, Romney, and Murkowski are three of the biggest, most corrupt, most obviously non-Republican Republicans in the country. They do not care about what's best for the country. They care about supporting the cause of uniparty communism within their states. That's why they've been around so long. Lisa Murkowski actually had her seat passed down to her from her father. So we have Republican senators, Republican in name only, supporting a nominee who is lenient in every case that has come before her regarding the possessing, viewing, and trading of pictures and video of child torture. And that is what it is. And that behavior from her can be expected because she has argued for that position for a long time. She has consistently taken the position that, well, they just were looking at stuff. Maybe they were just curious. Maybe they're not that bad. Maybe they just made a mistake. There's no indication it will ever happen again. And then it happens again. And she says, oh, well, you know, some people make mistakes twice. So there's no way in the world that this is the best possible black woman who could sit on the Supreme Court. At best, her judgment is terrible. At worst, she's evil. And it's also highly possible, in fact, almost definitely true, that she's compromised. And she's making these decisions because she's told to. Because it benefits someone else. And that someone else may be the person she's related to by marriage, Paul Ryan. And it may be the people that Paul Ryan associates with in the global communist movement. It's clear that people from higher up, higher up than the fake president, Joe Biden, obviously, 
Joe Biden doesn't make his own decisions. Joe Biden didn't vet the nominees and choose Katanji Brown Jackson. Katanji Brown Jackson was chosen for Joe Biden and Joe Biden threw his feeble weight behind it. So why was she chosen? Well, obviously, the people above Joe Biden thought that Katanji Brown Jackson would do the things they want her to do with the least pushback. So is Katanji Brown Jackson corrupt or is she compromised? It has to be one of the two. She is doing the bidding of other people. So she is either corrupt or compromised or perhaps just evil. And any one of those three things makes her the ideal candidate. Okay, we are living partially in a false reality created and perpetuated by the global communists and their propaganda mouthpieces. We are told she's a very strong and capable and committed black woman with integrity. And there could be no better choice than Katanji Brown Jackson for the Supreme Court. All of the media goes along with that story, no matter what comes out. Josh Hawley brought her actual record to light. And the media said that Josh Hawley was catering to Donald Trump's QAnon base that believes all sorts of powerful people are actually into pedophilia. Well, hey, I don't know if they are or if they're not. I do know that some are because that has happened before. We've seen that before. You can find it in the news. But that's not really the distinction worth making. If she is supporting and going easy on pedophiles, it doesn't matter if she's one herself. She's working for the benefit of pedophiles. It's not like she approached her nomination going in, ready to give a strong, evidenced defense of what she had decided in those cases. The White House actually tried to block the sentencing documents from the public view so that people couldn't be informed about what the cases actually entailed. So they could just say, well, yeah, there was, you know, it was only eight cases and the details, man, you have to understand the details without the details. It's really just, you know, you're not being very charitable by accusing her of all these things. And so then the details start to come out. The situation gets worse. And now it's not that Josh Hawley is catering to QAnon. It's that all Republicans are racist because she's a strong black woman with integrity. And if you say no to her, well, it must be about race. I would suggest that Katanji Brown Jackson might be one of the most controlled people in our society. She's going to make these decisions because she cannot choose to do otherwise because she's not allowed to. And then you look at Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins with the understanding that the higher ups in the global communist order actually chose Katanji Brown Jackson for Joe Biden. And you start to wonder if maybe Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins are all just doing the bidding of the same people as well. And there's more than ample reason to believe that's true because they're just as wrapped up in benefiting from the global communist order as anyone else. And they're almost certainly, and it becomes pretty easy to see that they're 
just as controlled through their own compromise and corruption. And the result will be, at least for a time, that we likely get this woman, this person who takes it easy on pedophiles seated onto the Supreme Court and all of the Biden voters, all of the child brains in the mainstream audience clap along because it is a glorious day that a black woman is finally on the Supreme Court. Yay, Uniparty. And you know, when she gets onto the court, what we're going to be told? Katanji Brown Jackson had bipartisan support with Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski. You know, Democrats, the heroes, the good Republicans. Oh, they're the good ones. And we'll be sold on the idea that it was an important moment of unity, this bipartisan act to finally seat a black woman on the Supreme Court. And if you don't agree, well, then you're either racist or you don't care about unity in the country. You're divisive. But let's hear more about how great bipartisanship is. And this is Friar Cuck, Jamie Raskin, in the January 6th committee hearing from yesterday. Both of you on this committee, it is the most bipartisan committee I've ever been on. It's the one committee Uh, Mr. Cole, that I serve on that doesn't begin uh, with, well, this one may be a partial exception, but most of the committees I serve on start with an hour of partisan polemics and diatribe where people are just slashing each other and attacking each other. And that's really not how the January 6th Select Committee works. We're rolling up our sleeves and getting down to work. We're trying to determine the events of January 6th, the causes behind them, and then what we need to do to fortify American democratic institutions moving forward against future coups, insurrections, and violence that would overtake our institutions. So not only is this a a bipartisan institution, it is a model bipartisan committee. And I hope it's one that some other committees can learn from in terms of people working together in a truly bipartisan way. I just have a couple more questions. And one for you, Ms. Cheney. You mentioned uh, that uh, something very important, which is the vast majority of people we've wanted to talk to have wanted to talk to us. I believe we're now over 800 witnesses who've come forward. Um, And uh, I dare say the majority of them are Republicans, people coming forward uh, to talk because they were they were involved in a a lot of the activities. A lot of people describe it as a patriotic duty to come forward to tell the Congress of the United States about this assault uh, on our democracy. But Ms. Cheney, you also talked about heroes out there, kind of unsung heroes in the land who stood up for the Constitution and the rule of law. Now, when I watch that, I think, wow, Friar Cuck is straight out of Orwell. I mean, think of any dystopian movie you've ever watched or like V for Vendetta or something. There is always one of the most evil characters just absolutely lying through his teeth while trying to make it sound like everything he's saying is not only 
honest, but it's caring. It's charitable. It's good for the entire society. And for anyone to deny that, they would just have to be one of the worst people on earth. Jamie Raskin was just going off about how bipartisan the January 6th illegitimate select committee is. There's only two Republicans on it. And they're Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Both of them will not even be Republican congressmen in a matter of, what, eight more months? Nine more months? Kinzinger's not even running again. And Cheney is getting blown out by Harriet Hageman in Wyoming. While Wyoming's GOP moves to eject her from the Republican caucus. Both Kinzinger and Cheney are diehard never Trumpers, obviously corrupt and compromised themselves. And they're basically cheerleaders of this effort to go after Trump, anyone associated with Trump and anyone who supports Donald Trump, you know, domestic terrorists. They've been all in on the select committee the entire time. This thing just keeps dragging on because they keep trying to extract information from people who are not even associated with January 6th. And one of those is Cash Patel. He actually discussed this a bit. He was being interviewed yesterday on the MG show, and I'm going to play a little clip of that. But listen to what Cash Patel says the January 6th committee asked about. January 6th committee spent six hours interrogating me under oath and I've demanded my deposition be released. Of course it hasn't. And I can't get into too much of the details that I said there under oath, but I can't imagine putting myself in a position where I have previously said things publicly that I would say differently to them. And because I've got nothing to hide, there's nothing, there's nothing unlawful or unethical that we did. And they spent six hours talking about Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, Mali, uh, cloak and dagger, you know, tales from, you know, White House past. And I said, I thought this was a January 6th committee. You guys want to talk about how the president authorized 20,000 National Guard men and women two days before and Capitol Police and Mayor Bowser declined that request? They were like, basically like, no, thanks for that information. We're going to move past that. Um, <laughs> so it's just a little outrageous that, uh, that that's where we are, but that's the only political narrative they have left to run on for the midterm. So the very legitimate, very bipartisan January 6th select committee had cash Patel in to give a deposition to testify. And they spent six hours asking about Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, and other cloak and dagger stuff. Stuff about Millie. What does any of that have to do with the very violent insurrection? And of course, the answer is nothing. And I've thought this, and a lot of other people have thought this for a pretty long time, basically since the beginning, that the January 6th Select Committee was constructed to find information 
that they couldn't otherwise find. They were going to use the legal authority and the abilities of Congress to gather information and to subpoena information in order to get access to information they couldn't otherwise access. This actually isn't about getting to the truth of January 6th at all. And that's easily provable because they haven't interviewed many of the key witnesses to some of the most important aspects of what happened on January 6th, 2021. And Cash is right. They should be wondering why Nancy Pelosi and Mayor Bowser refused more defensive support on that day if they were so scared about a very violent insurrection. They're not actually interested in the truth of January 6th at all. The whole thing is a sham. And of course, that's exactly how Friar Cuck Jamie Raskin likes it. He's not actually cheering on bipartisanship. He's cheering on his unrestricted ability to do what he wants using the power of Congress for ways that not only don't serve the people, but aren't even legitimate or legal. Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, was not allowed to assign Republican congressmen to that committee. They just chose Cheney and Kinzinger. Like the Democrats were drafting their team and were like, oh, we'll take those two very patriotic Republicans. So the committee's doomed from the start. It's obviously extraordinarily biased from the start because the intent of the committee is something completely different from what the intent is claimed to be. And we are supposed to believe that the committee is actually even more legitimate because of the success of what we call bipartisanship. What we call bipartisanship is a group of people doing the bidding of the global communists with both D's and R's next to their name. That is what counts as bipartisan now. Not getting together and figuring out a compromise that helps the country, getting together and figuring out what you need personally to agree to do the bidding of the global communist, as it always is. And they'll shuffle. They'll shuffle who's going to be the Republicans to do the communist bidding this time. And they're always able to find enough. If some Democrats need to be protected at home in their district, if Joe Manchin needs to be protected in his state, well, then we'll get Murkowski and Collins to join the Democrats. We'll call it bipartisan. Joe Manchin is protected. Mitt Romney's going to run the next time against some obvious communist. And then Mitt Romney will win again because the Republicans in Utah will be like, well, I guess he's got an R next to his name. That'll be better. And this is what we're going to see this fall. If nothing is done on election fraud and we go into the 2022 election with this current election fraud system, they will still find ways to put enough rhinos into the Congress, into the House and enough rhinos into the Senate so that they can continue to push their system forward without stopping. And we're told, no, it will be better because Republicans will be in office. Global communists with R's next to their name will replace the global communists with D's next to their name. It'll be a red wave. 
And once that happens, well, the Republicans are going to have the majority and then they can have investigations and then they can do this and do that and they can make Trump the speaker. That's not going to happen. And they can finally get to the bottom of the 2020 election fraud, but that's not going to happen either. And you can know it's not going to happen because the use of rhinos is to make Republicans think they're in control while the group of rhinos shuffles its members in and out of siding with Democrats. Well, this rhino is not going to do anything about election fraud. But did you see that speech he gave about the border? Everything's fixed now, except everything's not fixed. That's the plan. Global communists don't care if the person has an R or a D next to their name. Then it's just a matter of figuring out who should vote for something and who should vote against it so that they can keep the narrative intact and keep the election fraud system intact and keep the uniparty system moving forward for the global communist agenda. That is the plan. That has always been the plan. That is why rhinos exist. And that's why it's not good enough to simply elect Republicans. They will do terrible things for America, terrible things that are antithetical to the MAGA movement. And the media will tell the child brains all across the country that everything is bipartisan now. Look at the country coming together, becoming unified. This is what we really needed. We got Joe Biden in the White House. Thank goodness Donald Trump is not around anymore. And we've got Republicans in the House and Senate to balance things out a little bit, you know, because those progressives, yeah, everybody gets it. Sometimes they get a little crazy. So we're going to have bipartisanship now. It's not going to push the progressives back at all because all those bipartisan people, man, they're really scared of being called racist by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They're not going to do anything, but. They're going to come together in the important moments. The news is going to tell us how bipartisan they are. It's going to be a better world. Can't you feel it? But bipartisanship is a trick. You just heard it described by Jamie Raskin, an actual dyed-in-the-wool communist. He's in the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and his father, Marcus Raskin, was the founder of the Marxist Institute for Policy Studies. Jamie Raskin has been a communist all his life, and now he's stoked on bipartisanship with Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Liz Cheney, Dick Cheney's daughter, and Jamie Raskin now see eye to eye. How does that work? And why do the Democrats never care about bipartisanship when they don't need Republican help? They are currently trying to implement the most communist agenda America has ever seen, and they're doing it for the benefit of an international governing body, an international order. They don't even try to pretend that most of the things that they're looking to pass are actually going to benefit Americans. And they never describe how any of this stuff is going to benefit Americans. They're doing the big things. They're solving racism. They're gaining tolerance and acceptance for people with extravagant sexual lifestyles, let's say. They're going to save the earth from the sun 
with the Green New Deal. They're going to erase borders so people can just move about the globe to wherever their slave labor or political power is best exploited. What about any of that even hints at helping Americans? None of it. So why in the world do they care about bipartisanship? Bipartisanship is a joke. And by the way, this whole idea of unity is a joke as well. Okay, there is no unifying with people who are putting a justice on the Supreme Court who's lenient when it comes to pedophiles. There's no unifying with people who right now are starting World War Three to hide their corruption and are doing it by funding actual Nazis. We don't unify by finding a middle position on any of those issues. Unity is not the goal. Doing the right things to help Americans is the goal. You don't unify with those kinds of things. Unity will come as people unify with our position, which is what they do as soon as they find out the truth of any of these issues. As soon as the media spell is gone, the unity that we will see is by people gravitating toward the truth, which people are naturally prone to do. The goodness of people is in their ability to ultimately choose truth and choose goodness. When the choice becomes clear, the choice has been muddled for decades by a government and a system and a media that have it as their express goal to confuse and divide people so they can gain power. That is what collectivist ideologies do. That is the end of collectivism. It always is. That's why it always fails and why it will fail again. But until enough of this country actually gets to that point where they understand they've been lied to, they've been tricked, they've been had, and they accept what's happened and they reject the trick, they reject the propaganda, they come toward the truth. There isn't going to be unity between the side that is learning more of the truth every day and the side that becomes more and more committed to listening to the television. There's no way to unite in there. And the solution is not to find certain issues where people with principles might compromise them so that we can call something bipartisan and pretend to be moving forward. More of that is the last thing we need. So let's move into some more obvious and more tangible uniparty communist corruption, specifically the Clinton campaign's creation of the Russia collusion hoax in order to undermine the candidacy of Donald Trump and then the presidency of Donald Trump as they continued to spy on Donald Trump. And let's remember that the Clinton campaign had the help of the FBI and the CIA, and they did everything with the full knowledge of then President Barack Hussein Obama and then Vice President Joe Biden. John Durham added additional filings last night in the government's case against Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman who brought the fabricated evidence of the link between the Trump campaign 
and Alpha Bank to the FBI and is being prosecuted because he lied to the FBI in saying he was not bringing them that information on the behalf of any client. And for a little preview, let's see what Rachel Maddow thought about all of this five months ago. This is a segment from her show where she was talking about the Igor Danchenko indictment, and then she goes into the Sussman indictment that had been handed down a couple of months prior. So have a listen, because it's always interesting to hear the cover-up story before it has to change months later. This is one of the great things about consistently analyzing an opposition that exists in a false reality. The things they say will never stay true over any long term because any new information always serves to tear down the old information. It's in 2016. Now, Durham's most recent indictment before this one was, um, in my opinion, a little weird, problematic. That one concerned a Democratic lawyer and cybersecurity expert who was in possession of research that purported to show a possible surreptitious communication channel between the Trump Organization and a Kremlin-linked Russian bank. Uh, Special Counsel John Durham charged this lawyer um, with making a false statement because when he brought this evidence to the FBI, he allegedly was inconsistent in his statements to them about whether he was bringing this information to the FBI on his own behalf or on behalf of his firm's Democratic clients or another client that he was that he had work, that he was working for. Everybody at the FBI knew this lawyer and knew exactly who his clients were and who his firm was working for. It was not like a secret that he had those associations with nefarious Democrats. But that indictment from John Durham does its best to turn that into a scandal, that someone with gasp ties to Democrats brought information about Trump and Russia to the FBI. And the indictment in that case spins pages and pages and pages of unsupported allegations backed with sort of cherry-picked quotes to try to paint the alleged communication channel between the Trump Organization and that Russian bank as a big smear campaign that was known to be false but was nevertheless deliberately cooked up by the Clinton campaign to bamboozle the FBI and make Trump look bad. And that, of course, neatly tracks with and supports Trump's insistence that everything Russia related was a hoax by the deep state and the Democrats. So that was the last indictment from John Durham last month. Today's indictment against this primary source and researcher for Christopher Steele's intelligence reports, this is about false statements the source allegedly made to those FBI agents working under Peter Strzok, who were trying to track down the veracity of Steele's reporting back in 2016 and 2017. The guy who was charged today is named Igor Denchenko. He appeared in federal court in Virginia today. He was charged with five counts of making false statements to the FBI about his own sources for certain things that made it into Steele's reporting. And whether Mr. Denchenko did lie to the FBI in those interviews will now be a matter for the courts. But it is also worth noting that this new indictment, just like the last one, spends comparatively little time talking about these alleged false statements and a lot of time talking about people Igor Denchenko came in contact with or talked to who are horror of horrors, Democrats, people who may have even supported Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. 
the unmistakable impression is that this indictment is designed to smear Christopher Steele's intelligence reports as things that were deliberately made up and concocted by rascally Democrats, even though none of that has anything to do with the actual charges against Mr. Denchenko. If the goal here is for this Trump holdover special prosecutor to try to, to try to discredit the whole Russia investigation by arresting various sources for that investigation, to try to discredit the Steele dossier because so many people have been led to think that that's the basis for the whole investigation, to essentially get payback on anyone involved in the Russia investigation, no matter how far down the chain. Well, what do the actual investigators think about that? The people who actually carried out the Trump-Russia investigation itself. Now, that is a pretty phenomenal piece of propaganda right there. The indictments are just targeted at discrediting the Steele dossier and the Russia investigation, both of which are totally legitimate. They're just going after these little details. There's not much meat on the bone. You can't really grab onto anything. You can't bite into it like Rachel Maddow really loves to do. So instead, you just hint around with innuendo to make your child-brained audience believe that none of it is a big deal at all. Just get it to go away. The whole John Durham thing. This is just some right-wing fever dream. This is what they like to believe really happened. They like to believe that John Durham's going to prosecute people for actual crimes. But the truth is... John Durham's just trying to find ways to make you believe you child brains in the audience. You very smart people. I mean, I'm sorry to make you believe that everything was above board. I mean, yes, I Rachel Maddow spent years telling you that Russian collusion was a certainty and that the Democrats were just trying to protect the country from Donald Trump and all his false engagements, all his entanglements with our foreign adversaries, not like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. All of it's fake. None of it means anything. We should, you know, to get to the bottom of this, we should really ask the people who were doing the investigation, because if they say they weren't doing anything wrong, then they must not have been. And it doesn't matter what the evidence says or what comes out in the future. Here's Peter Strzok. But then, lo and behold, five months later, Durham puts out some more filings. And now there's just obvious evidence that the Durham indictments were well-founded and well-sourced and well-researched and well-constructed. And for some analysis on this, let's turn to the always great Technofog, who knows this issue inside and out. The headline from Technofog's Substack today John Durham, Michael Sussman, and the broader Clinton conspiracy. There was a flurry of filings in the Michael Sussman case late yesterday. Here's the latest. On September 19th, 2016, DNC slash Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman met with FBI general counsel James Baker, where Baker was provided with data and, quote, a white paper purporting to show covert communications since proven to be bogus, between Russian Alpha Bank and the Trump Organization. Special Counsel John Durham has just provided evidence that the night before, on September 18th, 2016, Sussman sent Baker this text. Jim, it's Michael Sussman. I have something time sensitive and sensitive in parentheses I need to discuss. 
Do you have availability for a short meeting tomorrow? I'm coming on my own, not on behalf of a client or company. Want to help the Bureau? Thanks. So there he is telling the FBI's general counsel that he is not bringing them this data on behalf of any client or company. And that's at the crux of the indictment, whether or not that was a lie. Now we can see that he absolutely told the FBI he was not working on behalf of anyone else. So the only part left to prove is whether or not he actually was. And of course, that's proven too. But not according to Rachel Maddow. She just wants you to know that Sussman just is a Democrat, just like so many people are. So he wasn't necessarily working for Democrats. He was just he just happened to be a Democrat and then did this thing while saying that he wasn't working for anyone. Back to Technofog. As it turns out, Sussman was billing the Clinton campaign for his work on the Alpha Bank hoax. This text from Sussman to Baker is damning for Sussman's case, proving Sussman's efforts at deceiving a top official at the FBI about his clients and demonstrating how Sussman tried to convince Baker he was there to supposedly do the right thing. Notes produced by Durham taken by Assistant FBI Director Bill Priestap and former FBI General Counsel Tricia Anderson, taken in their conversation with Baker after his Sussman meeting, help corroborate Baker's recollection of Sussman's lies. In Priestap's notes, he writes of Sussman, represents DNC, Clinton Foundation, etc. Been approached by prominent cyber people, academic or corporate POCs, and Anderson's notes are similar. She writes, Deputies Meeting 91916. She goes on to write, Sussman Meeting with Baker. No specific client, but group of cyber academics talked with him about research and followed with the phrase, Article this Friday, NYT WAPO WSJ. Gosh, that's amazing how they know what the newspapers are going to report on before they do it. Gosh, incredible. In this filing, Sussman seeks to preclude the use of these notes, arguing they're hearsay, not subject to an exception. Technofog also notes that this confirms Bill Priestap testified before a grand jury, something he suggested back in January was happening. Durham disagrees and argue they are admissible, these notes. And Durham likely wins this dispute. The case is laid out really well. You can read it in the filings. The filings from last night are all available in the info stream, t.me slash I'm your moderator on Telegram. Sussman also asked the court to order the special counsel to give Rodney Jaffe immunity for his testimony or have the case dismissed. Of course, Jaffe, tech executive one in the Sussman indictment, is the Sussman client who helped lead the effort to manufacture the Alpha Bank Trump hoax. Sussman maintains that Jaffe would, quote, offer critical exculpatory testimony on behalf of Mr. Sussman, but cannot because Durham is, quote, manufacturing incredible claims of continuing criminal liability for Mr. Jaffe that are forcing Mr. Jaffe to assert his Fifth Amendment right. So basically, Sussman is saying that Jaffe could give the evidence that would get Sussman off, 
But Jaffe can't give that evidence based on other based on the indictment against Jaffe, causing Jaffe to plead the fifth and not be able to offer up that exculpatory evidence that would get Sussman off. If that sounds complicated and convoluted, you're right. That's a long way of saying that Jaffe faces real and perhaps imminent criminal exposure. Let's talk about that for a moment. The bad news for Jaffe is good reading for us. The April 1st, 2022 letter from Jaffe's attorney to Sussman's attorney. In this letter available here, and Technofog has linked it, Jaffe's counsel confirmed that Jaffe, quote, remains a subject of the special counsel's investigation. According to Andrew DeFilippis from the office of the special counsel, Jaffe's, quote, status in the investigation was sufficient to establish a good faith basis to invoke the privilege against self-incrimination. To this statement, Jaffe's attorney responded that the statute of limitations had run since the events described in the Sussman indictment. The special counsel disagreed, stating that, quote, certain fraud statutes have longer than a five year limitation period, end quote. And the Russian Yoda phone related allegations given to the CIA in February 2017, quote, percolated through various branches of the government and around the private sector after that date in various forms. Sussman's attorney argues that Jaffe would provide favorable testimony, including one Sussman and Jaffe agreed that the information should be conveyed to the FBI and the CIA to help the government Two, the information was conveyed to the FBI to provide a heads up that newspaper outlets were going to publish a story about links between Alpha Bank and the Trump organization. And three, the researchers and Mr. Jaffe himself held a good faith belief in the analysis that was shared with the FBI and Mr. Sussman accordingly and reasonably believed the data and analysis were accurate. So Sussman is basically arguing that he was under the impression that the totally contrived connection between Alpha Bank and the Trump organization was actually totally legitimate and that he was taking this information to the FBI for the purpose of the further exposure of truth and a heads up to the FBI about stories he knew would be running in the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal a couple days later. Again, it's pretty interesting that the media had this story first. So Sussman had this very damning information about a completely contrived connection, completely fabricated, by the way, and we can get into more of that in a second. But this completely fabricated information already had gone to media outlets before he was able to get it to the FBI. It must just be our independent media really getting to the bottom of these very important investigations. Technofog writes again, Sussman likely loses on this front. And while this gives us information on the Sussman-Jaffe relationship, it also gives an insight into Sussman's anticipated defense at trial. Unfortunately for Sussman, there are powerful rebuttals to these points, most notably that the Sussman-Jaffe team was pushing the Alpha Trump story to the press in the first place. The researchers' doubts about the Trump Alpha evidence and how Jaffe was in communication with Fusion GPS. And these claims are noted in the recent filing. 
This Sussman filing also mentioned Durham's discriminatory approach to immunity in this case. The motion continues, stating that one witness has immunity and that the special counsel is considering granting immunity for a second witness. Technofog writes, this leads me to ask who has immunity. It's tough to tell from this filing, but I'm guessing it was someone associated with Jaffe or the Alpha Bank Research Project, perhaps Researcher 2, who was identified as David Dagon. There is a smaller but not immaterial chance it was DNC Clinton lawyer Mark Elias himself. After all, Elias has testified before a grand jury, and Durham has this to say about the potential for Elias's testimony at trial identified as campaign lawyer one and Technofog cites the indictment campaign lawyer one. This is Durham campaign lawyer one believes, however, that he likely discussed the Russian bank one allegations on one or more of these calls. Russian bank one is alpha bank. And who is the person the Sussman defense understands might be given immunity? I'm guessing it's Christopher Steele. Let me explain in another filing. Sussman implores the court to prevent three categories of evidence or argument from being admitted at trial. The gathering of alpha Trump data, the accuracy of the alpha Trump data and Christopher Steele fusion GPS and the Steele dossiers. According to Sussman's attorneys, the special counsel produced witness statements for Mr. Steele pursuant to 18 U.S. Code Section 3500, presumably because the special counsel seeks to call Mr. Steele as a witness at trial. But Technofog believes that it is unlikely Steele gets called as a witness. I think it's more likely that Steele's witness statements were produced by Durham as part of a general discovery. And that Sussman's attorneys are outright speculating at the intent of the special counsel with respect to Steele. Thus, the imprecise language, presumably, and understands. Finally, the allegations of conspiracy. Durham states, quote, the evidence of a joint venture or conspiracy, end quote, will establish that Sussman and Jaffe, quote, worked in concert with each other and with agents of the Clinton campaign to research and disseminate the Russian bank one allegations, end quote. That statement from Durham leaves us with an important question. Which agents of the Clinton campaign were involved in this conspiracy? Now, John Solomon from Just the News has a great write up on this as well. He appeared on the war room this morning, noting not only the text message, but the fact that conspiracy and joint venture were used by Durham for the first time. So the entire Durham thing is in very literal terms, a conspiracy theory. It also happens to be a conspiracy theory that is backed up by extensive evidence of a conspiracy. And of course, it turns out there was a conspiracy. There were many people doing something illegal in secret. How much more evidence do we need to go from calling this a conspiracy theory to a conspiracy fact? The facts about an actual conspiracy. And of course, this aligns with Trump's recent suit against the Clinton campaign and many others alleging Rico racketeering, alleging a conspiracy, a group of people formed an enterprise. They got together, 
for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose was to be kept secret because it was illegal. It is what is being claimed. It is what is being shown in the evidence. And it's what people are now being indicted and tried for by special counsel John Durham. And just like that, you go from the mainstream global communist propaganda outlets and their mouthpieces like Rachel Maddow calling all of this a conspiracy theory. There's no proof, baseless claims, no evidence. It's just for payback. They're targeting people just because they're Democrats. They're trying to make it seem like Trump never did anything wrong. This is all Trump's bidding. He appointed all these people. Okay. Well, five months later, everything you said to cover up for this conspiracy theory turns out to be completely false. And the key thing to remember is she knew it at the time. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. It's hell!